Hello, my friends. Can you believe it? They're trying to mask us again. Well, not us, but our children, which is even worse. Children are at the least risk of COVID. And why would we punish them other than the fact that they can't fight back? I'll tell you a story about an Ottawa politician trying to mask children at schools that she herself doesn't send her own kids to. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. It's the video version of the show. I want to show you a video of this doctor or politician. It's just nutty. Go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. You get the video version of this podcast, eight bucks a month. I think that's a good deal. And we need the dough because we don't take any money from Trudeau at all, unlike almost every other Canadian media. All right, here's today's show. At Rebel News, we're not afraid to have dangerous discussions, and we want to have them with you at our upcoming Rebel Live events, first in Toronto, November 19th, and again in Calgary, Saturday, November 26th. Just go to rebelnewslive.com to get your tickets today. Tonight, they actually want to force children to wear masks again. They're really trying that. It's November 15th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. Joe's hand-picked RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky testified before the Trucker Commission today. Take a look. But I, but I want you to, to concentrate on, on that scenario then. Cabinet is on the verge of invoking the Emergencies Act. You are their window on law enforcement. You told us this earlier. Your update to Cabinet as it is deciding whether to invoke the Emergencies Act is that the police now have a plan, they've pulled it together, and that you, as the commissioner of the RCMP, consider that plan to be workable without the authorities of the Emergencies Act. And that doesn't get delivered. Your messages don't get delivered to cabinet when they then deliberate on the invocation of the act. Do you appreciate the significance of that scenario? Uh, yes and no, because we had spoken about the fact that we had an integrated planning cell, that we were bringing together a plan, an enforcement plan to go forward. So there was talk about a plan and that a plan was in progress. I reported on that, I believe, in, in my previous IRG. So it wasn't a brand new concept. Um, but yes, in fact, the fact that we now had a plan, I, I'm not sure if it was signed off either. Um, as of that point, because we were having difficulty getting it signed off, we didn't realize it needed to be signed off. I'll leave for another day the substance of the question and the answer, but look at her. She's wearing a mask. Not the cop next to her, weirdly. Not the judge, not the lawyers. No one is wearing a mask there, except her. Even Trudeau wasn't wearing a mask today. It would be crazy if he did. Here's Trudeau living out one of his dreams, walking next to Joe Biden in Indonesia at the G20 summit, both of them wearing those costumes. Trudeau loves costumes. Let's just consider ourselves lucky that he didn't also break out his blackface kit, too. Here's Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of New Zealand, who, like Trudeau, is a big World Economic Forum disciple. And that's her with Klaus Schwab. He's the head of the World Economic Forum. But hang on, the G20 is a group of 20 countries sovereign nations and their leaders. So why is Klaus Schwab there on par with sovereign leaders like Biden and Trudeau and Ardern? We can criticize all three of those leaders, but they can at least say they were elected 
by countries and, and might be diselected next time. Who, who invited Klaus Schwab? On what basis? Did he, did he buy his way in, lobby his way in? Bill Gates was there too. How did he get in? I mean, I guess if you can buy yourself out of a child rape allegation, you can buy yourself into anything. You know, it was also widely reported that Bill had a, a friendship or business or some kind of contact with Jeffrey Epstein and that you were not, uh, that that was very upsetting to you. Did that play a role in the, in the divorce at all in this process? Yeah, as I said, it's not one thing. It was many things. But I did not like uh, that he'd had meetings with Jeffrey Epstein, no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you made that clear to him? I made that clear to him. I also met Jeffrey Epstein exactly one time. Did you? Yes, because I wanted to see who this man was. And um, I regretted it from the second I stepped in the door. He was abhorrent. He was evil personified. I had nightmares about it afterwards. So, you know, my heart breaks for these young women because that's how I felt. And here I'm an older woman. My God, I feel terrible for those young women. It's awful. You felt that the moment you walked in. I didn't he realize was awful. that. Yeah. And you shared that with Bill and he still continued to spend time with him? Any of the questions remaining about what Bill's relationship there was, those are for Bill to answer. Okay. But I made it very clear how I felt about him. Mm -hmm. But back to the point, none of them are wearing masks. Not even their servants are wearing masks, which was a thing for a long time in North America. This classic image of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez dressed like a princess at the ball while all of the working class servants around her wore masks. <laughs> but of course, they're just dirty little peasants. But the G20 is mask free. Even though just a couple of days ago, before he left Canada, Trudeau wore a mask, then took it off, and then wore it, and then took it off at some big pharma photo op. He went mask on, mask off. The whole thing was a show. It always is. But not in Indonesia with the big boys. I mean, talk about a global super spreader event. 20 countries were gathered, plus Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates. China was there. Talk about spreading germs. But again, masks are for the little people. Trudeau isn't worried. It's for you to worry. Put your mask on. Now, Brenda Lucky wore the mask not because she's worried about her health, but because, like any guilty witness, she doesn't want people to see her face when she testifies. It's easier to tell a lie when your face is covered. It hides involuntary body language. I bet she would have worn sunglasses, too, if she could have got away with it. Like poker players, well, they wear sunglasses to hide their eyes when they bluff. Brenda Lucky is a proven liar. She lies constantly, including when she called up police in Nova Scotia to instruct them to help Trudeau's political campaign to ban guns by releasing certain information about the mask shooting out there. Mass shooting, excuse me. She lied about her phone calls, encouraged others to lie about it. So, of course, she hasn't been fired. She's essential to Trudeau's success. Her lying won't get her fired. It's what will save her job. Jody Wilson, Raybould should have known that. Masks uh, traditionally are a tool to hide your identity. That's why burglars wear them. That's why they're part of Halloween costumes. Masks dehumanize us because our face tells so much about us to each other. The damage we did to children, including newborns, by wearing masks and denying them the right to see faces of their own parents is indescribable and unforgivable. 
Masks were necessary because they were a flag of lockdownism. They had a psychological purpose, make you think about the disease all the time, something that wouldn't happen normally. It is true that over 40,000 people have died in Canada from COVID in the past three years. That is not good. It's a bit higher than the flu's death toll over the same period of time. And that's if you believe the government's very liberal definition of who qualifies as a COVID death. A paramedic friend of mine was telling me just the other day how they were instructed to cast a very wide net as to deciding who was sick or died from COVID. Exactly the opposite approach taken to counting who gets sick or dies from the vaccine. Master the flag of lockdownism because without them you wouldn't know we were in danger. You wouldn't know we were in a pandemic. You wouldn't be worried because it affected mainly the elderly. Many people had no symptoms even when they caught the disease or only mild symptoms. Without 24-hour immersive media, you actually would not have known we were in a pandemic and you certainly wouldn't see it unless you worked amongst very old seniors in a long-term care facility or something like that. Young people just didn't get the disease and if they did, they didn't get it seriously and if they did, very few of them died. No, the masks were necessary to make you afraid of your neighbors and make you afraid of yourself to make sure you didn't relax or lose your anxiety. They were a tool of distress. They increased mental illness much more than they protected anyone from anything, especially children who had close to a 0% chance of death from COVID. It truly was a death, a disease of the old and sick. If you wore a mask, it was just telling the world that you were part of the ruling elite or sucking up to them. <laughs> I mean, take a look at this. Come on. What can you say about this CBC reporter? Sister, you're not going to spread the virus through your computer. But imagine imposing masks on children again. Well, that's what they're trying to do. Take a look at this story from the CBC. Oh, they're so excited. Trustee to push for mask mandate in Ottawa's largest school board. Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth plans to introduce a motion to hold an emergency meeting on masks Tuesday. A newly elected school board trustee plans to introduce a motion Tuesday to call for an emergency meeting to vote on bringing back mandatory masks at the city's largest school board. Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth, a family physician in the Glebe, ran on a platform to bring back masks in schools when she was voted in as the Ottawa-Carleton District School Board trustee for Zone 9 in October. Well, the CBC couldn't be happier to them. MD doesn't stand for medical doctor, stands for media darling. At least those doctors who are pushing for more government authoritarianism in your lives. Um, the CBC doesn't have much time for dissenting doctors, though, or what we used to call a second opinion. I'll read more. Currently, the province is dealing with a triple threat of COVID, influenza, and respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, which can cause breathing difficulties for babies and toddlers. A triple threat. They love using super scientific language like that, don't they? Uh, who is this Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth? Well, here she is on TV Ontario, the state broadcaster owned by the government of Ontario. I want to play a glorious clip for you, and kudos to Steve Pakin. Take a look. We're all getting back to normal now, folks. So let's start there. Are we back to normal yet? No, so the language that you use when you say something like uh, normal is a far right um, language of anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers and ableists who uh, disregard the impact of COVID on, on seniors, on children, on educators, on essential workers, on healthcare workers, on our healthcare crisis. Uh, there's nothing normal about getting COVID, repeated infections, 
children and adults being hospitalized and long COVID. There's nothing normal about taking away the protections and the proactive measures that we had to help to reduce transmission of COVID. And there's nothing normal about uh, getting rid of any kind of isolation requirements, which would have helped to curtail outbreaks in schools, in workplaces and everywhere else that you go. So she wears a mask when she's alone. <laughs> oh, and it's not a hardship. You should do it, too. In fact, you must do it, too. At least your kids must. Uh, the science says so. I mean, trust us. Always wear a mask. Always. Even after people have left the room, especially if you're on Steve Pekin's show. Um, <laughs> except if you're getting a publicity shot where you want to show your face, not a smiling face, of course, a dead serious face. Even if a photographer is there, well, some risks are worth taking. And here's what our friend Andrew Lawton said. Here is Ottawa physician Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth in her clinic, unmasked in December, while a photographer was in the room. Yesterday on TVO, she said being unmasked in her clinic alone was unsafe. Hmm. Well, now she's a school board trustee, and she demands that your children be masked. But what's so weird is I, I don't think she sends her own kids to that school board, to, to the public school. At least one of them, for sure. Here, listen to this angry mask fanatic, Bristle, when she's asked a question about that in a non-mean way by some friendly online debate moderator. This was when she was running for school board. She wasn't wearing a mask here for some reason. Uh, now, Nilly Kaplan-Mirth was not attacked, but she attacked back. She was very angry, very defensive, very weird. But the short answer is no. She doesn't send her kids to public school, at least not the one that she talks about here, but she wants to tell public school children what to do. Isn't that weird? Take a look. Do your children presently attend private school or public school if you have children? And have you ever sent your children to private school? Uh, Neely will hear from you first. So actually, I think that it's um, inappropriate to be asking us what school our children go to. And because I am somebody who is um, receiving death threats, I'm not going to talk about where my children currently go. I can tell you that one of the things that happened to my eldest when he was in high school was um, that he couldn't navigate his way around Glebe Collegiate. He couldn't get the supports that he needed as a child with learning disabilities and a child who was gifted and a child who had extreme anxiety. And in order for him to complete high school, we had to put him, we had to put him at another school uh, in order to get him the supports he needed. He needed one-on-one -on -one teaching. And I can tell you that as a parent, uh, when I started off um, parenting, I had no money. I was a student who um, had uh, to basically take hand-me-down um, snowsuits and boots because I was living from paycheck to paycheck. And um, I am not um, comfortable with the fact that when our children struggle, um, it only, it, it basically ends up being that those children who have access to funds end up getting the supports that they need. My son would not have gotten through high school. He, like his teachers told him that. You might be gifted, but you, you're you not picking up a pencil. You're not gonna be able to do the work and um, and your kid's gonna fail is what we were told. Um, and, uh, and I mean, we had to, even at the, even at that time, we had to uh, borrow from family members and, um, and, just kind of, you know, suck it up and, and send him uh, where he could get one-on-one -on -one education. And that should never have happened. Holy moly, anger issues. But really, isn't that the true face of maskers? 
Who wants to go back to that? <laughs> and would they want to go back to this, a mask enforcement mob chasing out an unmasked shopper? People can wear masks if they want to. Always could. This isn't about people wearing masks. It's about people forcing other people to wear masks. That's the essence of the past two years. The defining characteristic of the last two years was not an illness. It was not a virus. It was politicians and bureaucrats and journalists telling other people how to live. Do you think they'll get their way again? Stay with us for more. Well, they say the sun never sets on Rebel News. Well, actually, no one says that. But I think it's sometimes because we have reporters around the world. You know, our Viewer's Choice Award winner, Avi Amini, in Melbourne, Australia. He's doing great. We also have reporters in the United Kingdom from coast to coast in Canada. And, of course, in the U.S. of A. And I'm delighted to introduce you in person to Jeremy Lafredo, one of our Americans working with us, who's based in New York City, and today for the first time visits us in our world headquarters in Canada. Nice to meet you in person, Jeremy. Thank you. It's great to have you here, and I, I know that one of the reasons we didn't meet earlier is that it would have been illegal for you to come to Canada to meet us because Justin Trudeau had a discriminatory policy based on private medical status. And in fact, to this day, it's illegal for me to visit you in your country because Joe Biden still bans foreigners who are not Jap, and I should say, one of the very few countries to do so. Yeah, it's it's interesting that um, it's illegal for us to, you know, simply meet each other uh, a few months ago, but it was um, completely legal for um, other things to happen, such as, you know, um, breaking the Nuremberg Code. Yeah, you know, and I see they're bringing back um, mask mandates, or at least mm. they're trying to do that across Canada. I think there's a lot of people who loved every minute of the pandemic. They didn't love the disease itself, but the disease was not the central part of the pandemic. The lockdowns were, the authoritarianism, the rush of power it gave people, the media publicity. I see these TV doctors, uh, and they're, they're loving the comeback this must mask mandates are having again. I think I see their name MD, and it stands for media darling, not medical doctor. They <laughs> loved it. They were important. They were relevant. They were cool. They were part of the public discourse. You never hear from doctors. Well, they were the, they ruled the roost for two years. Not only did people crave what they had to say, but they obeyed them, these unelected, unaccountable doctors. And God forbid another doctor had a, a different opinion. Well, that other doctor was silenced. And there are some people who desperately want us to take us back to that. Yeah. And it wasn't only doctors that, you know, were able to, you know, just um, enjoy every minute of the pandemic. You had that entire, you know, some people call it the laptop class. And they were able to just sit at home and order food on their uh, phone and work on their computer and not leave their house and at the same time feel, uh, you know, immensely brave for doing so. Um, and of course, they'd love for that to come back, for them to, you know, feel so great just staying home and feel like they're doing everybody a great public health service. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, um, I want to, we're talking about this and just the reason we have not met until now is it was illegal. Mm -hmm. One of the places you worked before coming to Rebel News was actually worked for Robert F. Kennedy Jr., am I right? Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, it's uh, his organization is called Children's Health Defense. 
And um, it's similar to Rebel News in, in a number of ways. Um, they do journalism and they do research, but at the same time, they sue and um, launch lawsuits against uh, the federal health uh, bureaucracy in the United States of America. So, you know, they sued the CDC, they sued the FDA. Um, and, you know, there's really not many organizations uh, doing that other than uh, Children's Health Defense and Rebel News. Well, we have started, we, we do a lot of litigation, civil liberties oriented mm -hmm. litigation in Canada. We're also defending our own rights. Our freedom of speech is under threat in Canada. But we have started to, to help in the U.S. And you've been working on two projects. And maybe just give us a little bit of an update on those. One is a Amish farmer. I don't think we have Amish in Canada, but we have other mm -hmm. traditional farmers like the Hutterites in my neck of the woods of Alberta. And there's Old Order Mennonites and they're, they're similar. They're uh, shy of technology and even cameras. Some old order Mennonites will not appear on, on camera with us. They're very religious. They, they homeschool or church school their kids. And they were really picked on during the pandemic, by the way, the old order Mennonites, because they, they, they chose to maintain their gatherings. Mm -hmm. They're religious and uh, they, they, they didn't buy the hype from the pandemic salesman. So they were picked on. Um, you have helped a farmer in, I think it's Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. right? Who's Amish. Now, it wasn't a vaccine issue or a pandemic issue. He just wanted to have sort of traditional old style farming methods without FDA oversight or injections mm -hmm. or whatever. He wanted to serve raw milk, for example. And mm -hmm. that's not to everyone's taste. <laughs> but the, the, the government came down on him like a ton of bricks. Tell us a little bit about Amos Miller, if I got his yeah, name right. Of course, yeah. Amos Miller. Amos Miller runs Amos Miller's Organic Farm in Burdenham, Pennsylvania. It's um, you know, a very tight-knit, remote Amish community in central Pennsylvania. And he's been um, you know, processing his own um beef organically on his pastures. And because he's not adhering to um the federal regulatory requirements, um, armed marshal service, the federal marshals, raided his farm. And they told him he must start um, going through the USDA um, suppliers and the government middlemen instead of doing everything himself. And they actually took, um, they took, uh, they counted all of his beef that was there to make sure that he didn't sell anymore. Hmm. Um, uh, just recently, there was um, something that happened in the case. Robert Barnes, who is, um, you know, one of the most famous constitutional lawyers in America, um, because of Rebel News reporting on this story took up Amos Miller's case and they're bringing this to the court. And um, Robert Barnes says this might even go to the Supreme Court of mm -hmm. the United States for food sovereignty, for bodily sovereignty. And, you know, it's our right to um, consume how we wish to consume. You know, it's incredible to me. We live in an age where euthanasia isn't just mm -hmm. lawful. It's being promoted, especially here in Canada. Drugs are decriminalized or legalized everywhere, again, in Canada, especially. Uh, you can do anything to yourself. You can engage in mutilation in the name of being non-binary. But God forbid you want to drink some unpasteurized milk or have beef killed by an Amish farmer who doesn't follow FDA rules. And one thing I learned about Amos Miller is that he doesn't have a retail shop that's just open to the general public. Mm -hmm. The people who sort of join his farm club, mm -hmm. like they say, I, I like this, I trust this, I want to be part of the team. And, and I, I think that was a legal structure designed to get around that you're selling to the public. But but there's something to it. If someone says, okay, I understand what we're doing here. I'm I'm literally signing up to be part of this organic mm -hmm. Amish farm. Even if raw milk was bad for you, even if the way he slaughtered his meat was bad for you, which I, I don't think it is. I mean, I myself prefer pasteurized milk. I just a tradition, a habit or whatever. 
But even if this wasn't healthy for you, for God's sakes, there's, there's nothing you can't inject in your arms or cut off your body with the approval of the wokarati. But a man can't sell raw milk or armed marshals will come to his farm. It's crazy. I mean, you know, the government has their hand in the selling of cigarettes in uh, the lottery business. And um, that, that isn't uh, too dangerous or, you know, too unhealthy for them. But milk, <laughs> milk is where they draw the line. It is an interesting um, thing that's going on in Pennsylvania. We got a petition at leavethemalone.com and more than 40,000 people signed it last I checked. I'm pretty excited about that. There's another project you did that was somewhat controversial. There was a young girl who was hospitalized in a pretty famous children's hospital. And at this children's hospital, though, one of the things they do is they use new or experimental drugs. And the parents who took this girl to the hospital objected to some of these mm -hmm. experiments after one of them had a really bad reaction with the girl. And the doctor sort of noted that the parents were skeptical of vaccines. The doctors noted that this girl was homeschooled. Both of these irrelevant, are irrelevant in the girl's treatment, but they're, they're very political, aren't they? And they literally moved to, uh, in, in the report, you called it sort of a medical kidnapping mm -hmm. uh, in that it was done lawfully. It was basically using the power of the state to take over the custody of the child in the legal sense. And um, here's a quick clip of that show you did, just to remind people about the case of Evelyn uh, in the Children's Hospital. Take a look. I'm Jeremy Lafredo for Rebel News at the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. Effectively, the hospital has medically kidnapped a 10-year-old girl because her parents made clear that they were not satisfied with the care she was being given and they wanted a second medical opinion. This is the use and abuse of Evelyn Young. Last month, Jessica Young's 10-year-old daughter, Evelyn, had swollen legs and a swollen stomach. After temporarily treating her daughter's swelling at home, the swelling returned, this time with a rash and sweating. The Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City is a controversial research institution that has effectively kidnapped dozens of kids after considering their parents who questioned the hospital's treatment decisions or asked for a second medical opinion as unfit to parent. Their latest victim is Jessica Young's 10-year-old daughter, Evelyn, who was effectively given to the state of Missouri after Jess made clear she wasn't satisfied with the hospital's protocols. You know, the idea that you would take uh, your child to the hospital be, to be taken care of and they would seize your child because you disagreed with their medical approach. I think that's got to be the most terrifying thing in the world. By the way, that's a tactic that Justin Trudeau did on the truckers, saying if they didn't leave, they would seize any children mm. or pets in those trucks. No legal basis for saying it, just designed to terrify people. What's the latest on Evelyn? Do you know what's up with that case? Yeah, of course. And it really it is um, a case of where they, um, they homeschooled their children. They didn't vaccinate their children. It had nothing to do with the the um, the medical situation that Evelyn um, was currently going through. They just disagreed with the lifestyle. They disagreed with the lifestyle and the politics of the parents. And they weaponized the children and they weaponized those politics and they tried to take the kid from the family. Um, and they, they succeeded. They took Evelyn from the family and um, she was in state custody for, you know, over three weeks. Um, and, you know, we had SaveEvelyn.com. There was people calling the hospital. Um, there was people... Um, making a ruckus. And uh, thankfully now, you know, a month and a half later, Evelyn is back um, in the custody of, of her parents. Well, that's good to hear. Well, listen, you're doing interesting journalism in that rebel style. You're telling the other mm -hmm. side of the story. And every once in a while, we actually do something about this story, which I really, it's one of my favorite things. I mean, I love the fact that we're contrarians and we're skeptics and we, you know, give 
voice to to unofficial views, the contrary narrative. But it's not just enough to be a voyeur. I mean, at the end of the day, a reporter is a voyeur. You you see things and you say, look at that, look at that. But you're impotent. But every once in a while, I think it's time to get involved and try and fix things. And in both those cases you described, we do that. Jeremy, it's nice to meet you in person. Welcome to, to Canada. I know you're headed back to the States. Lots of stories to cover. And I know we're going to hear from you soon about an exciting foreign adventure that you're on, but we don't want to give anything away uh, just yet until we're ready to announce it. Nice to meet you in person. Nice to meet you. Thank you. There you have it. Jeremy Lafredo, our New York City correspondent. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back. Your letters to me. Green Grammy says 17% of election day votes were Democrat. How does Hobbes win? Impossible. More shenanigans. Well, I don't know the statistics you're referring to, but I know in a lot of states they have mail-in votes or ballot harvesting where people can go collect ballots and mail them in en masse. The Democrats are very organized, and they do that to ensure high voter turnout from their base. And in the case of John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, remember, he's the stroke victim who waited till the last moment to debate against uh, his Republican opponent. And it was in that debate that he was revealed to be cognitively damaged from his stroke. But if you had harvested 50, 60 percent, I don't know what the percentage is, of Democratic voters before that debate, you got their vote. There's no way they're changing their mind. So mail-in ballots, ballot harvesting is a Democrat's dream. The Republicans should get better at it, of course, because if those are the rules, however unfair the rules are, well, use them to your advantage, too. Boat Topper says, Ezra, thank you so much for sending reporters to Maricopa County and what wonderful precise reporting reporter had details that matter. The U.S. conservative media seems to only report from afar. Do not want to spend the money on investigative news. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, and it wasn't that expensive. I mean, we flew Katie from Seattle down to Phoenix and we put her up in an Airbnb and she has some costs on the ground. But I think she's doing a good job there. I'm just excited to be there. Unfortunately, there's not really a lot going on. It's just counting behind closed doors. They still haven't finished counting. Blasian Babies 2020 says Dave Chappelle is a legend, yay too. Now listen, uh, some people I really respect said that Dave Chappelle was racist and anti-Semitic. I do not believe that. In fact, I believe that he is a cool, calm, clear-eyed critic of any identity politics. And listen, every group has identity politics, including the Jews. The Jews are sensitive when people talk about their influence. I am when people accuse me of things because I I feel like I should be judged on my own decisions and my own merits. And the decisions I made in life, which I'm happy to take responsibility for or blame for or credit for, are not rooted in my genetics or my ethnicity or, or my religion. They're my own choice. And, and one of the reasons I think people don't like racism, uh, if they're victims of racism, is that it denies their individual nature, denies their their mental independence, it denies who they are. And uh, I don't think I feel a lot of the brunt of that because I'm, you know, I'm very Canadian. I grew up here. I, I, I understand our ways. I'm culturally assimilated. I'm Jewish, but there's really not a lot of anti-Semitism in Canada. So I don't feel that. But occasionally when people talk about, you know, Jewish conspiracies, and most of the time I find them laughable, but the odd time they're they're pointed at me, which is not often, what irks me about them is that In a way, it's like repudiating or rejecting or ignoring everything I do and say and judging me based on my DNA instead, which is contrary to to how I live and how I think. So I can imagine what it feels like to be judged 
by anti-black racism or anti-Italian racism. That's why, I, that's why I thought it was so powerful. When um, Dave Chappelle said, a group of blacks is called a gang, a group of Italians is called a mob, and a group of Jews is called a coincidence that you shouldn't talk about. And uh, I thought, geez, you know what? I, that was a very clever analogy. And I, I think that by overreacting to, to gentle comments like that, I think that the Jewish community does not erase anti-Semitism. It actually firms it up. It confirms it in the mind of the conspiracy theorists. I don't think that Kanye West is a bigot. I think he's someone who's searching, searching, searching for ideas and answers and truth. And I think he's been abused by the system and by drugs, uh, like pharmaceuticals that he was put on. He was, I think he was wrongly hospitalized a few years ago. And the fact that a lot of the people who are abusing him happen to be Jews is something he's lashing out at, but I don't believe he's an anti-Semite in his heart. That's my thought. I've never met the man. That's the show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. Keep fighting for freedom. Hey everyone, William Diaz here with Rebel News, and today we'll take a look at what went on uh, during the 21st day of the Emergencies Act inquiry. On November 10th, 2022, the commission was on break on November 11th for Remembrance Day. This inquiry is taking place because Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act on peaceful protesters who were part of the Freedom Convoy back in February, who were simply protesting federal COVID-19 mandates. You can see and support our independent coverage of the inquiry here at truckercommission.com. The witnesses who appeared in front of the commission were Marlon DeGround, Assistant Deputy Minister of the Public Safety Division, and Director of Law Enforcement for Alberta Justice and Solicitor General, and Mario Di Tommaso, Deputy Solicitor General of Community Safety at the Ministry of Solicitor General. The ground was the first one to testify. Here's what he had to say. The RCMP, uh, as the police force of jurisdiction, made their efforts, uh, and they had some limited success very early on, very, very, very early on, first days. Uh, that, that support dissolved from industry quite quickly. Uh, they went afield. And that was local support. They went afield and garnered some limited support, which also quite quickly dissolved. And then they were struggling after that to find any support anywhere, uh, both within the province and commercially outside of the province, BC, Saskatchewan. Uh, I believe they might even have looked to to uh, commercial entities in the south, but I'm I'm, I'm not 100% certain of that. I'll let them speak to that. Uh, they approached us to indicate the challenges they were facing and they indicated that they were going through their channels to seek support from the Canadian government for the use of uh, heavy lift capacity that exists at the, uh, the Canadian Forces Base in Edmonton. The is with the Alberta government and though uh, the border was blocked during some periods by truckers and farmers at the Coos border, uh, the Alberta government has come out against the use of the Emergencies Act to dissipate the protesters. That protest was resolved before the Emergencies Act was even used. You can see the story of Coots by journalists who were there at truckerdocumentary.com. DeGrand also testified that he was not aware by February 13th that the Emergencies Act was about to be invoked. Under the heading Alberta, it says that the biggest operational challenge to date is procuring towing uh, wrecking equipment and skilled workers to operate the equipment. That's correct. Um, by this point, uh, you had most of that equipment at least. The information that uh, Mr. that Talal in this message was referencing came from a, a point in time 
prior to us having finalized the, uh, the, the purchase of the last of the equipment. So we were still looking for trucks when he and I had a conversation and his his reference, uh, his uh, reference to our conversation contained in this email to uh, Rob Stewart is, is based on that sort of time-dated information that we were still looking for it. Of course. And, and by that, that point, on February 13th, you had no idea that the federal government was about to invoke the Emergencies Act. That's correct, sir. Moving on to the second witness of the day who testified that day, we take a look at DiTomazzo's testimony. Take a look at some of what he testified to. Federal Emergency Act measures were put in place to help solve what you've indicated was a policing matter, so a law enforcement uh, issue. Um, did you see any concern about using uh, federal measures to uh, deal with uh, what is substantially a provincial matter, which is policing? Uh, no, because the Emergencies Act invocation, from my view, was um, national in scope. And so not knowing what the federal government concerns were Canada-wide, um, I wasn't really in a position to have those concerns. And in your view, uh, did you support the use of the Emergencies Act? Uh, I never turned my mind as to whether I supported the act. Um, I can tell you that the um, authorities granted by the Federal Emergencies Act were helpful and they were used by um, by law enforcement. Now, humorously enough, Di Tomato mentioned that uh, the right to protest, quote unquote, does not apply to trucks. He compared the protests in Ottawa to the protests taking place in Toronto. Take a look at his exact words. What Toronto did was they set up a hard perimeter around um, the critical infrastructure that the protesters were most interested in, uh, namely Queen's Park. Um, uh, they, um, they requested um, uh, resources from other police services to help them do that. At the end of the day, they denied access to Queen's Park, Queen's Park Circle, um, hospital access uh, roads, um, University Avenue down to Hospital Row. So all of that was denied to um, to the uh, the convoys that were coming to Toronto. So the trucks, the vehicles were not permitted into that area. Uh, they certainly facilitated the ability to exercise one's fundamental rights to lawful protest. Those uh, truckers were available to come to Queen's Park and protest on foot because, as we know, the right to protest belongs to people and not to trucks. Di Tomato also stated that when prior to the Emergencies Act being invoked, he called Deputy Minister of Public Safety Rob Stewart to figure out if the act would be invoked. And no response was given. That's in the transcript. There was silence, the evidence shows. Take a look. You make some notes in relation with the to a call with uh, Deputy Minister Stewart at 8.55. I inquire as to whether Federal Emergencies Act will be invoked today, silence. Um, what was your uh, interest in inquiring about the Federal Emergencies Act? Well, he had signaled to me the day before that the federal government was considering the invocation of the act. Um, and this call here, um, uh, I wanted to know whether or not that was in fact happening. He did not. He did not answer my question. Okay. And did you take that to mean that and that was the affirmative, and not wanting to to answer one way or the other? Yes. 
Uh, was the province expecting this to happen or was this just you asking or were you asking on behalf of others? This was me asking. Okay. Do you know whether the Solicitor General or the Premier were expecting the government to uh, invoke the Emergencies Act? No. Finally, following the day's proceedings, we invited Tom Marazzo, key figure of the Freedom Convoy, to our live stream. Listen to some of the testimony earlier on in the, in the morning. And uh, obviously, whenever they were talking about the military and that testimony came up, you know, I, I perked up a little bit and uh, started to listen a little bit more. But I don't really think that that part of the conversation is overly newsworthy. Mm -hmm. um, I, but it was interesting to me to see that there was uh, an attempt in Alberta to have the military get involved and provide them with some heavy equipment uh, or towing capacity. Uh, but I think the, the witness today was talking about how frustrated he was that he knew because in his organization, they had retired military there that were kind of make, giving advice in terms of what military equipment they could have to go and start towing trucks. But the, you know, the Canadian forces struggles desperately to keep a lot of its equipment serviceable. And so it, it doesn't mean that you know, just because the military would say, hey, we can't we can't support you and what you're asking for doesn't mean they don't have the equipment. It just might mean that it's actually not serviceable. Mm -hmm. And so that's always a challenge for the military. So I think, you know, when they kind of paint that narrative that, you know, the military uh, couldn't do the job, it's kind of true, but not through any like uh, resistance on the part of the military to get involved. But more importantly, you know, for a province to request the military, they do have to go through the federal government to get that support. They just because they're co-located with the military in that province with CFB Edmonton, they can't just go to Edmonton and say, hey, can you help us out here? Well, there you have it. Here's everything that you need to know about what went on during the 21st day of the Emergencies Act inquiry here in Ottawa. The Liberal cabinet is set to testify next week, so definitely stay tuned for that. For Rebel News, this is William Diaz.